0: everybody welcome back to excuse my reach i'm your host emma isaac today our guest is caitlin trefeven a speech language pathologist at therapy ops from a young age i have had the pleasure of watching caitlin carve a clear intentional path mixing her passion for helping others and providing meaningful solutions through her dedication and hard work she cultivated her ideal career And landed exactly where she wanted to be. Her confidence in her trajectory motivates me daily, and I hope it can do the same for you. So without further ado, Caitlin, welcome to Excuse My Reach. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Hi, I'm Caitlin. (laughs) Thanks for having me here today.
0: You're so welcome. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You guys I've known Caitlin pretty much all my life. We met, what, when we were like three years old?
1: Yeah, preschool.
0: We met in preschool, and we have been best friends since first grade. I don't remember how that friendship started. I remember being in line with you at school, and then like one day thinking, she's going to be my best friend.
1: (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Do you remember that? (laughs) I do not remember that. I remember not being invited to your birthday party in kindergarten. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, when you're five years old, I don't think you're really the one making the guest list. Whatever, Emma. Was I at your five year old birthday party? Uh, probably. <laughs> Do you remember what you did? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, okay. You don't. <laughs> well, I wanted to have Caitlin on the podcast today because, like I said in that intro, Caitlin, you've had a very kind of clear trajectory of what you've wanted to do for a really long time. And I don't think that's the case necessarily for a lot of people always, but that's why I'm so curious about so much of your path, how you knew what you wanted to do. But I wanna start from the very beginning, kind of how we were just saying, like our friendship started when we were three. Mm -hmm. So I wanna bring it back to all the way when you were a kid, right? Can you just tell me a little bit, like? What were your interests when you were young? And do you feel like any of those interests tied into, I guess, what you're currently doing today? Yeah.
1: Well, I guess, I mean, I started babysitting at a very young age. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that was like something I just always enjoyed doing stuff with kids. And just, I mean, being a kid, that's basically what my job is, is just being a kid. (laughs) which is super fun. Um, So I think that was just like always something that I was like, I just want to be able to like play and have fun with kids and do something like that. So that I think was kind of what piqued the interest there. I kind of always wanted something that wouldn't make money as well. Like I had like that in my head. So then it was always like, oh, I'll just be a doctor. That was kind of the original thought. Oh, I'll go be a pediatrician. Um, but then as I got o- I got older, I was like, wait,
0: that requires a lot of school. <laughs> so
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> everyone's pr- realization when they think about pre-med, it's like, oh, that's a very, very distinct path. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was just a lot. And I mean, there's obviously extra schooling for speech language pathology, but not to the extent that a doctor requires. And there was even a point where I was like, when I was still in the doctor round, the doctor path. I thought pediatric oncology for a little bit, but then moved on from that. And then it was actually when I was in high school that I eventually found speech language pathology. I, uh, I went to a program at the University of Minnesota where they talked about pediatric healthcare careers. And there was a speech language pathologist there who talked and I just, everything she said about the profession, I was like, wow. That sounds like exactly what I want to do. And I got her card. I met with her like one-on-one. And then after that, I was like, yep, that's what I'm doing.
0: And that's how we ended up here. (laughs) That's how you got to where you are today. Well, I'm sure there are a lot of other things that you had to do to get to that. Well,
1: yes, there were. (laughs) A few more hurdles.
0: Yeah, probably a lot more (laughs) hurdles. But before we even get into the nitty-gritty of that, were there distinct things past just your interest in working with kids in some kind of area, whether that be in the medical field or then eventually you found speech language pathology as a career path, were there things that you found that you were really good at that led you to that aside from just the thing that you were interested in? And then also, were there specific things that you felt like were more challenging for you at a young age that you were like, okay, I'm gonna stay far away from that in any kind of a career?
1: Um, well, I think in terms of like things that I was good at is I was always very good at like forming connections with kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was like something I'd always get a lot of compliments on from like families that I babysat for and stuff like that is that I could just like form that connection instantly. Kids feel very comfortable around me. So I think that was definitely something that I was good at. Um mm-hmm. And then... terms of things that, like, I wanted to stay away from, nothing, I don't think there's anything I can really think of off the top of my head. I mean, definitely, like, lifestyle choices, like, you know, some, (laughs) like, in terms of the medical field, like, there are some careers where, like, you have to work on weekends, you work really weird hours, like, things like that, and that was something, like, I did not want in terms of, like... Eventually, when I have a family one day, like I wanted a career that would support that aspect Mm -hmm. of my life as well. So,
0: yeah. Do you feel like those were things that you thought about like that young? Like it's kind of or even when you mentioned about like knowing that you wanted to be in a career that had some kind of financial stability. Yeah. Where do you feel like that came from? Like, how did you even know that that would be important? I think part of it was my dad,
1: both my parents, I should say, not just my dad. But they definitely like taught me about like financial stability and the importance of that, the importance of saving um and I don't know. I've always just been like a planner. I need a plan in my life, so you have been yeah, <laughs> I can't not know what I'm doing, so yeah,
0: yeah, you're not a fly by the seat of your pants kind of person. <laughs> no, I need a plan but that's that's good to know though. Ahead of time prior to getting into starting your career, you know? Because it's then from the get go, you're like, okay, I'm not going to start on something that I'm not completely sure about. Something that has more of a path to it that I can actually follow steps that's better for your personality type. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now transitioning more into college and things that you learned there. So you found out about this program at the University of Minnesota when you were in high school. Once you first found out about that, what were the steps, I guess research-wise that you did for you to pursue that in college? Yep.
1: Yeah. So, while I was still in high school, I met with that speech-language pathologist and she told me about the career and everything, and from there I researched for programs just like through universities where like when I was doing college search- college searches and stuff. Um found i mean there are tons of them all over um mm-hmm. i ended up going to the university of minnesota love it go Gophers. <laughs> go gophers <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and uh once i was in college that's when i started doing like a lot of volunteering at clinics um mm-hmm. i uh, volunteered at a clinic in hopkins minnesota called pact Institute. Um, And I got to do a lot of shadowing there um, to see what the profession was like. And then also just learn more. They taught me a lot there. Um, And I feel like that's where I got, like, I think that's, that was key doing that volunteering to see what the profession is like. I mean, no shame to the University of Minnesota, but I feel like I learned the most through those volunteering opportunities than I did in school getting that actual hands-on mm-hmm. experience.
0: And how did you get those volunteer opportunities? How did you find them or know about them? Um, so that
1: one was actually someone I babysat for. Um, the mom. <laughs> Full circle. I know, right? The mom um, knew a speech pathologist and got me in contact with her. And then from there, I just emailed her And went and met them and started doing the volunteering right there. Um, But I also, I mean, for people who like don't have those connections, clinics like where I work right now, we love getting volunteers because then they can like do a lot of stuff that we don't have the time for. (laughs) Um, Literally searching for any clinic on Google and reaching out to them, say, hey, do you need a volunteer? People do that all the time and the clinics love it.
0: So before we get too far into this, two questions I want to ask is, one, what is speech-language pathology? And then also, when you were a volunteer, what were some of those things that you were initially doing?
1: So speech-language pathology, I'll start with kind of explaining what that is. Um, I personally do it with kids, but you can do it anywhere from birth through end of life. Um, so a wide range there. So if people don't like kids, you can still do it with adults. Um, <laughs> but I'll start with kind of explaining what we do with kids. Um, there's a wide range of things that you can do. Um, so a lot of times what people think is, oh, you help kids say their sounds, which is what we do. If you can't say like the L sound, like lion sounds like YN, we help you learn how to say those sounds. So that's one thing we do and a lot of kids we do help with that, but there's a ton more too. Mm -hmm. For example, what I am most interested in is I love the little, little ones. So like little two, three-year-olds and for whatever reason, they have not started talking yet. Um, so helping with like that early language development, um, something I've been seeing a lot more of recently is kids who just have like very little engagement and play skills, helping build those skills since that's a precursor for language development. Um, so helping them with that to get to that language development part. Um, we work with kids who have various genetic disorders like autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, which comes with, can come with like a host of different issues. Um, so a lot of like social communication with those kids with autism teaching them how to communicate in social situations. Um, Kids who are nonverbal, we can help them get devices that they need. I currently have a client who I am getting a device for, and she'll be using eye gaze to access it. So that means like looking, since she can't really use her upper extremities, um, looking at the screen, using her eyes to say what she wants to say, selecting those messages that's a lot of what we do with the kids then we can get into adults I don't know as much about adults since that's not what I do but um typically if you're doing it with adults it's usually a disorder they have acquired later in life so like if you have a stroke will come and say you lose some sort of communication because of that helping you build those it, then it becomes more like cognitive skills like if you lose your memory mm-hmm helping you um, gain the skills to communicate that way. Or if you forget how to swallow, we can teach you how to swallow. We are, if you work in a hospital, speech language pathologists are the ones who can take you, who are the ones who say, yes, this person can now eat food or nope, they can't eat food yet. They still need uh, the feeding tube. So we do that as well.
0: Yeah. When you come in as a volunteer obviously having, not having, you know, that real world experience yet or that training, what are the types of things that those volunteers are helping with?
1: Yep. Yeah. So with kids, since that's what I did volunteering, I'll just explain that. We'll have them observe first to kind of see what our clientele is like. Um, And then a lot of times we have them create activities that we can use in our therapy sessions. Um, so once they kind of know like the types of clients we have, what we're working with then they can create activities for us to use with the clients. So that's kind of a big thing that we'll give our volunteers to do. Um, and then also just like when I was a volunteer, um, my supervisor, she showed me all of the tests that we, that they give Um, and then Mm -hmm. I was able to score those for her. Um, so that was a really cool experience to have to kind of like see those tests and how to score them since that's a big thing that we do as well as all those evaluations. And then it can be like little things too, like not as fun, but, um, like organizing (laughs) our toy closet for us. I have the volunteers we have at my clinic right now, just like totally, got this whole new organization system for us cuz our toy room was getting just so chaotic and now it's all organized and clean and we know where everything is which is really nice. So those I would say are kind of like the big roles of volunteers typically.
0: When you talk about them creating those activities, do they know how to do that based on just the activities that were already there that you guys do or yeah. like how how do they know how to do that? Do you learn that in college?
1: No, I think it's just a lot of like we, so we have like activities there already where they can kind of be like, okay, mm-hmm. like that is like something we can work with. And we'll give them like, like St. Patrick's Day is coming up. So we like, we'll give them like a theme to work with, like, oh, like try to find something like St. Patrick's Day themed when Valentine's is happening, do something Valentine's themed. No, I don't think it's really anything
0: that you learn in college.
1: Not to be mean to college, but.
0: No, that's totally fair. And I think that that's a really great point specifically because this is a profession and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you have to go to a university first and then after also to go to grad school. So it's interesting to know that kind of the first step into the introduction of this profession, you're actually not really gaining a lot of experience or knowledge about what you're doing on a daily basis, right?
1: No, not really. Like I look back at I mean, like we took classes and obviously like I learned, but I don't think anything I really learned in those classes has helped me become like the speech language pathologist I am today was kind of just like, oh, I have to take this class to get into grad school.
0: Right. Yeah. Do you feel like there is a key thing that you can look back on and be like, that is one thing in college and maybe it's not even related to what your major was, which can you remind us what was your major in college?
1: It was speech language, hearing sciences. And I got, I did a double major. I did speech language, hearing sciences and Spanish.
0: Okay, I want to touch on that too. But first, (laughs) do you feel like there was anything helpful that you did take away, even if it's not related to necessarily, like it could have been a general class?
1: We did. So for one of like the final classes, it was my senior year. Um we did take one that we uh, had to do like community work for that I went to Fraser um and then we would have to like kind of like journal about what we saw and what we learned and I felt like that was a re- I really liked that cuz like especially like the journal aspect gave me like time to like reflect on like what I saw and
0: that helped me learn um and can you sorry can you just say what Fraser is
1: Yes Fraser is a clinic um they do a lot of work with kids who have autism. Um okay. so it's like a they have a day program there where you can if your kid has autism, and doesn't necessarily have to be autism, but that's just kind of what they specialize in. Um so you can send the kid there and they receive all their therapy there. So they there's speech therapy there, physical therapy, occupational therapy. There might be they do like family counseling there as well. Um So I went there and helped out in one of the classrooms there and then did the journaling part for school.
0: So a little bit more of that real world experience that you were able to gain from that class. Yes. So I do want to touch on, you mentioned that you did a dual degree. Can you talk about that a bit more, again, what it was and why you felt like it was important for you to do that, to take on this extra workload, but also to gain some of that extra knowledge for yourself?
1: So my second degree was in Spanish at school, as you know. I took Spanish from preschool through until I graduated. Um, so I don't I always just have loved languages and maybe that's part of what drew me to speech language pathology is a little bit. is just more like the language linguistic aspect of it. Um, I've just yeah and I I love Spanish and I think it's just <laughs> I love Spanish. <laughs> Shout out to Senor Isaac.
0: <laughs> That's my mom, yeah. you guys. My mom was a Spanish teacher. Caitlin had her.
1: Um, but I felt like that was just like such a unique skill that I have. Like not everyone knows Spanish, obviously, or just a second language in general, and. I just wanted to be able to use it in my career to help others, which I am now doing. Um, And that's why I kind of decided to get that second degree. I didn't, I didn't want to lose my Spanish. That's always been like a huge fear of mine since I spent so much of my life learning it. And um, B wanted to be able to use it to help people. So then I was like, decided to take on that extra workload and, I was at somewhat of an advantage of, like, other people who would want the full major since I took AP classes in high school. I was able to skip a lot of, like, the earlier
0: classes, so I didn't have to take as much as others, but still a lot. I think it's so smart that you did that specifically, the idea of learning a language in particular, I feel like it's something that so many people lose. You know, they practice it day in, day out if they have the privilege of being able to do so where their school offered that to them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you do, you lose it if you don't speak it, you lose it if you don't continue to practice. So I think that's really cool. And then I'm sure it's been able to set you apart a bit more too, having that dual degree and that extra knowledge do you recommend for other people to do a dual degree? Did you find that it was very challenging time management wise? And then also what made you decide to do it as a dual degree as opposed to just doing a minor?
1: So, I mean, as opposed to just doing a minor, um, since I had come in with so many classes already, like I only would have had to take one class for me to get a minor. So I basically got that minor my freshman year that's wild yeah i know (laughs) i don't know it just i i think the main thing that pushed me was the thought of losing it where i was like i don't care if Mm -hmm. it's extra work and i personally did not feel like it was a ton more work than it was i'm trying to think i think i only had to take one i only took one spanish class a semester each semester of college um plus my study abroad time. So it really didn't feel like that much more to me. And I think the fact that I enjoy Spanish really didn't make it feel like extra work for
0: me. That's totally fair. I want to touch on really quick, because you mentioned study abroad. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? A couple things. One, where did you study abroad? Can you just tell me a little bit about that experience? But then two, did you feel like it was easy enough to maintain your workload while you were there or do you feel like study abroad it kind of becomes harder to do everything that you're meant to do when you're in college education wise yeah kind of the drawbacks and pros and cons
1: yeah so I studied abroad in Buenos Aires Argentina and I I did it a little bit differently than like normal typically like you go like your spring semester your junior year that's like kind of like the typical Mm -hmm um but i did it for a summer semester so uh, instead of going during the, like the actual school time i went during the summer mm-hmm. um and uh, because of that i didn't have like other classes to really worry about cuz it was summer i took i think i took four classes in total while i was there or two two or four classes but i would highly recommend studying abroad to everyone especially if you're trying to learn a language i think that's where like that's where i felt i got like the most confident in my spanish speaking abilities and where it really like pushed me to that okay like wow i'm like fluent in this now like i can mm-hmm. speak this just as easy as i can speak english like that's where i really felt like it pushed me there in terms i honestly don't think there are any drawbacks to it <laughs>
0: You're like, I loved it. It was amazing. Great. I
1: mean, uh, I would highly recommend it to anyone.
0: For those four classes that you were taking while you were there, were any of them specifically related to speech language pathology or was it more so on the Spanish side of it?
1: They were all on the Spanish side. Yeah, nothing was related to speech language pathology.
0: Is it something that you had to seek out a lot of how am I going to be able to study abroad? Or was it something that was highly promoted at your college? It
1: was very, it was highly promoted. Actually, um, as a Spanish major, you're required to study abroad. Oh, wow. You're required to study abroad or do a uh, community, if you like can't study abroad for whatever reason, you have to do like a community outreach type class. I don't know much about those since I didn't do them. But you would do it like at in Minnesota. Got
0: it. And do you recommend doing it outside of the school year, like how you did it in summer? Did you feel like that was easier to manage and kind of like less stressful to have to contend with the school year or?
1: I think so. Yeah, it felt less like school then. Like I felt like I was just on vacation and I had to go to class every once in a while. But the classes were, in my opinion, really easy and you know, mm-hmm. they know that you're studying abroad, so they don't really push you that hard in the classes. Like, I don't know. I think, you know, when you study abroad, you learn the most by like going out and experiencing the culture there. Like that's where you learn, not sitting in
0: a classroom. Right. Well, I I think specifically, too, for Something like your Spanish program, going to a Spanish speaking country, ingraining yourself in the culture, speaking to locals. Like that's probably part of the educational process rather than just sitting in a classroom.
1: Yes, for sure.
0: Cool. Well, I do want to talk now about that transition from college to grad school, because like I had said before, this is a profession that you do have to go through a lot of schooling to eventually get where you need to be for it. So I want to hear from you just kind of about the entire process. First, starting off, the application process, the grad schools, like how did you apply? Did you have to take the GRE? If you did, if you can tell us a little bit about what that exam is like, things like that.
1: So before you can even apply to grad school, you need to get a degree in, you don't need a degree in speech language hearing sciences, but there are certain amount of prerequisite classes that you need to apply okay um so I got all those since I did do the the degree in speech language hearing sciences but I have a friend who got her degree in global studies and then also took the prerequisite classes and now she's going off to grad school so if you don't want to get the whole degree there is another way to do it
0: Do you know what those prerequisite courses are, or does it vary depending on possibly like which grad school you're trying to get into? No,
1: it's the same for every grad school. They have their like set requirements that just like everyone has to follow. Um, I don't know what they are off the top of my head.
0: Is that something you would just be able to find like if you were searching for? Yep. Yep. If you were looking into a grad school that, you know, for that specific program, would they list out those prerequisites? Yeah, they do.
1: Yep. They put it on their website. Um, Like when you search, like if you search University of Minnesota grad school for speech language pathology, they have on there all the application requirements. And within that, it says what the prerequisite classes are. Got it. Yeah. So that's kind of step one. Another one of the requirements, when I was in school was that you did have to take the GRE um so I just self-studied for that it was I a lot of grad schools are not requiring it anymore once COVID kind of happened they stopped and I think they just kind of realized like okay what what is this really testing like if I can do a math problem like I'm gonna be a good speech language pathologist like yeah yeah because I think ugh, the GRE I like blocked that part out of my life but
0: <laughs> you. pull pull back pull back that memory caitlin <laughs> tell us about what it was like because i know i know you're right they a lot of grad schools are moving away from it more but yeah. can you kind of just tell us like what is that test
1: yeah so i think it's like three or four hours long um there's like there's a math section on it an english section on it and a writing section it's pretty similar to like the ACT, just more complex. Um, okay. Yeah. So I just got one of the, like, you know, those big study books that you can buy, use mm-hmm. that to study. It took a ton of practice tests. The math one was definitely the hardest for me because I think I only took one math class in all of college and it was a statistics class. So I had to like relearn how to do a lot of stuff. Um But yeah. And then the English one, very similar to the ACT where it's like grammar, like things like that. Right. Yeah. And then the writing one, they just gave you a prompt and you write about that prompt. That was that. Um, And I only took it once. You can take it more times if you wanted to, but based on the scores that I got, they were like in the average range for what a lot of the grad schools took. So I was like, I'll be fine. Like that's good enough. Um, And that was that. And then I started kind of looking at what grad schools I wanted my junior year of college. I started kind of like researching for different schools. Um, There is a big website through the American speech and hearing association that lists all of the programs. So uh, I basically just used that whole list to kind of narrow down where I would apply to. And just, I mean, a lot of it was just like looking at making sure I had all the prerequisites, which of course I did since it was my major seeing what like their Mm -hmm. average GRE scores were the average GPAs of what they accept, like just kind of making sure I had all that. Um, and then I narrowed it down to, I think I applied to 10 schools total. That's more than what the average person does, I would say.
0: <laughs> I was just going to ask you, I was going to say, is that something? Why do you feel like you applied to so many? Is I think it, were you kind of just, like, just trying to broaden your search?
1: Yeah, I think I was just like so stressed. I was like, okay, well, like the more I applied to, like maybe there's a better chance of me getting in somewhere. Because, I mean, I did kind of like I had like my reach school is kind of more my safety school is just like when you apply it to a normal college. But, yeah, I remember when I was asking for letters of recommendations from my professors, one of them was like very surprised that I was applying to 10. <laughs> and I was like, sorry.
0: Really? <laughs> <laughs> Can you actually talk about that, too? So letters of recommendation for people that may not know it's something that you have to get either from professors or can you also get letters of recommendation from like peers or people that you've worked with? Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you decided to choose who to get one from?
1: Yeah. So most schools required that you needed three letters of of recommendation. That was kind of like the typical number that you needed. Um, Most schools required that two of those were your professors. I did that and you could do a third professor or what I did for my third person was the speech language pathologist at the clinic where I volunteered to just mm-hmm. kind of have, like, she saw me in a very different light than like my professors did. Obviously like she saw me like interacting with the kids and like doing things for the profession. So I would definitely recommend having a person like that, write One of your letters of recommendation. Um, and then For my professors, um, I had just become closer with some than others in grad school, or not in grad school, in undergrad. Um, So asking the ones that I had just formed better relationships with, I just would go to them, their office hours, and ask them. And they're very used to people asking them for these, obviously. So they all said yes.
0: Good, I'm glad. (laughs) Do you feel like it was more important to ask people that knew you the best and knew your work ethic the best rather than maybe asking a professor that almost directly aligned better to something or it seemed like more of an integral class or do you feel like you didn't really have to choose because the ones that you were closest to also
1: yeah I feel like the ones that I was closest to did align with that so um but I would definitely say like if you're having to choose I would choose uh someone who knows you better and can speak to you because I think a grad school would prefer to like hear more like those personal stories versus just Mm -hmm. like some generic statements about you.
0: And that actually leads me to my next question, which is, what do you feel like, obviously, shocker, Caitlin did get into grad school. (laughs) That's why she's able to be a speech language pathologist today. But what do you feel like made you stand out in the process? Do you think that it may have been those letters of recommendation? Do you feel like it was your GPA, your GRE score? You said you kind of opted into only taking it once. So not needing to do it over and over again to get the perfect score? Or do you feel like it was the essays that you wrote? Yeah. You feel like really made you stand out?
1: I think, um, part of it was like, I, you have to write a personal statement. I think part of it was that. I think I was pretty proud of the one that I wrote. So <laughs> what did you write it on? <laughs> um, I'm trying to think what it was. It was, uh, I think it was kind of like the progression of how I found the career and, uh, I talked about just like the experiences I got with um, volunteering and then I also incorporated my Spanish into it a little bit as well, which I think the Spanish also set me apart from others as well. I think that was a big, I mean, I don't think it was my GPA. My GPA was very average. I think I was just very well-rounded.
0: Do you feel like that's the top piece of advice that you would give somebody trying to get into grad school for your specific program. Yeah. Just try to differentiate your experiences as much as you can.
1: For sure. Yeah. Cause I mean everyone's gonna have a good GPA. So you need something else. Like, so don't just focus on getting all the good grades. Like go out and get the experiences as well. And then like that will help you a lot when you're writing your personal statement too.
0: Did you know as soon as the personal statement prompt came? Well the, are the personal statement prompts the same like is it always just like generic like write whatever you want that you feel like identifies you the best or so uh,
1: kind of going back to the application process there's something called the SIDCAS and it's like the common app but for speech language pathology grad schools so that one had just like a generic prompt that you wrote about and uh, The majority of my schools were on there, but I think there were two or three that were not. So then they had their own separate prompts, but they ended up being like basically the same. I would just had to like reword them like slightly.
0: And did you have people read your essays? Did you have people look at your applications? Did you have an advisor in college that was helping you through this? So I did have an advisor who helped me through, like,
1: all of, like, freshman through senior year. Um, He didn't help me, like, a ton with, like, the application process. He was more just there to make sure I had, like, all, like, the prerequisites I needed in terms of classes. And then I took a class my senior year, I think it was. Yeah, first semester, senior year, I took a class that was called, like, writing a personal statement um so in that they taught us how to not taught us how but just kind of gave us like a lot of tips on writing our personal statements we would have peers you know you'd switch with a peer and read theirs and they would give you advice and then you also met with the professor like a couple times during the semester and they would like, give you edits and stuff too so that was very helpful
0: so okay you go through this application process you've applied to your 10 schools you get into some of those schools how do you narrow it down? Yeah. You, I know, were fortunate enough to get into more than one school. So you did have some choice in the matter. So how did you figure out what grad school was best for you?
1: Yeah, well, part of it was proximity to Minnesota, <laughs> which I didn't end up. Mm-hmm. I went I ended up going to St. Louis University, um, so St. Louis, Missouri. So like not super close to Minnesota, but <laughs> I think it just came down to location of the school st louis university was in a bigger metropolitan area so i knew that there Mm -hmm. would be better uh, clinical opportunities there and then it also just came down to of all the schools that i got into st louis university was the best one so Mm -hmm. you know i wanted to go to one that was like had a reputable program so Mm
0: -hmm. yeah I think it's really a great point that you're saying about the being in a big metropolitan area. Because when you first said that, I was thinking to myself like, oh, she wants to be somewhere where it's like lively. She has places to go out, people to meet, all that. But no, it's actually like what you're saying is a really valid point that wherever you are, the opportunities surrounding you are probably going to be greater if you are in one of those big cities. Exactly. Did you feel like it was then like that held true? Like, were you able to find opportunities oh for sure
1: yeah there were so many I mean I lived like a block away from the big hospital there um yeah there I mean there were just so many clinical opportunities there and the school had like tons of relationships with them as well so they were able to get me in there which at the other school I was considering going to was kind of like middle of nowhere Missouri (laughs) Um <laughs> um, but the one thing that had drawn me to that program was they had a uh, kind of like a study abroad type thing, but you would go for like a few weeks to Mexico and there was a clinic there where you got to therapy, and I was really drawn to that because of my Spanish. But I'm really happy I ended up choosing St. Louis University, I think, just for the clinical reasons, and I don't think I would have ended up being able to do the Mexico thing because covid happened and
0: oh true yeah. yes you were experiencing grad school yes when covid started mhm yeah it happened my uh, gosh march 2020
1: that was my second year second year first that was my first year that was spring semester my first year yeah that was An experience that most people don't have.
0: (laughs) Definitely probably changed your experience a bit more. Probably made it a little bit different than others. Yeah. I do want to talk actually about kind of transitioning away from your different experience than you had from others. Some of those same things. How many years of grad school is speech-language pathology?
1: It's two years. It's a two-year program. Okay. Yep. After you graduate, you have to take like a board exam to officially get your license um Mm -hmm. so I took that my last semester of grad school which is when most people do it I some people will wait until after they graduate but I just like when I graduated I just wanted to be done I did not want to take any more tests I just wanted to be done so I took it my um like I said that last semester my second year and passed it um obviously Otherwise, I wouldn't be a speech-language pathologist. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then after the two-year program, you have to do a clinical fellowship year. Um, so that is a certain amount of hours. It basically ends up being like nine-ish months, depending on if you're working full-time or not. I was working full-time, so mine ended up being like nine months long. And you're working as a speech-language pathologist, um, but... So you get paid and everything, but you're under the supervision of a licensed speech language pathologist. So you can't officially apply for your license through the American Speech and Hearing Association until you um, finish that clinical fellowship year. So then once you finish your clinical fellowship year, then you can apply for your license, which, I mean, it's just basically... Saying I did all these hours. I went to grad school. And then you pay a nice fee and you get your license.
0: Okay, awesome. And two kind of things that you just mentioned in there that I want to touch on a bit more. One, the board exams. Did you feel like that, I mean, obviously it's this huge exam that you've been building up all of your schooling to then hopefully be able to pass this exam. Yeah. Do you feel like it was more challenging than some of those standardized tests that you've taken in the past or less challenging because you're almost more prepared for those specific skill sets that you tested on? Yeah, I think
1: it was less challenging than like the GRE, but it was a lot more stressful because that's like the big finale, like, the big test you have to take in order to be a speech-language pathologist. But I think I, like, stressed out about it way more than I needed to, which I think just everyone's <laughs> going to do. <laughs> like, it's just right how it is. But, yeah. How long
0: is that exam?
1: Um, I want to say three hours. Okay. And it's all, like, multiple-choice format. Um, but... They're basically all like clinical scenarios that you have to answer about.
0: Are you able to take it again if you fail?
1: Yeah. Is there a max? Not that I am aware of. Um, There's a time you have to wait. I think you have to wait Mm -hmm. like a couple months to retake it.
0: And then the other part that I wanted to touch on that you mentioned, your clinical fellowship year, is that something that when you were in grad school, they like helped place you? Or how does that process work? Do you have to find that yourself? Yeah, you have to find it yourself. It's like applying for a job. What was that process like? like? Was it a lot of just you outreaching to as many places as you could? Or did you feel like it was more specialized?
1: No, I think it was just, you know, like searching on Indeed, looking up clinics around the area. And then, I mean, just applying to them, looking, they'll say on there, um, CFYs, which stands for Clinical Fellowship Year, welcome to apply. Um, so if they said that, then I applied. I ended up staying though. I So I did apply to a few places, but where I did my last intern, my last clinical in grad school, they offered me a job. So I ended up just staying there.
0: Very cool. And I want to get into that. But right before I do, I do just want to touch on quickly for grad school. I want to talk about the tuition piece of it. Is it something that is very expensive. Do you know kind of the difference between like college and grad school? Is grad school a bit more affordable? And are there opportunities to apply to scholarships? Yeah, so it's
1: not affordable. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would say it's, I mean, it's two years shorter than undergrad. So I think ends up being cheaper, but it's because it's two years shorter. I think it ended up being like, I want to say 60 grand for two years. A lot of uh, grad schools offer teaching assistant um, Mm -hmm. positions and through that you get a stipend. Um, So it can cover anywhere from like two credits a semester to like 15 credits a semester. Plus you get like a certain amount of money each Semester as well that you can use towards housing, tuition, whatever you want. I did not have one of mm-hmm. those, um, but definitely something that's out there that people can apply for. And you select that like when you're going through the application process of applying to grad schools, so you like select if you want to be considered for one. That's an option out there to help save money. And then schools also do offer scholarships, those you kind of have to dig for.
0: Yeah, kind of kind of like college, too. You definitely have to dig for scholarship opportunities, for loans, all of those yeah, things. Yeah. But it is out there. I will say, like, all that information, it's out there. Sometimes you just have to do, like, a lot of searching to find it. Yeah. I, I wish a lot of those things were a bit more, like, laid out up front, but definitely options. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to get into more about the job now, too, and specifically first, the transition from going through the schooling process of it into like the real world, right? Because a lot of people, if they don't have one of these professions that requires grad school, they start working like right out of college or even before then. And I know for you, you were doing your clinical fellowship that led into your first job. So did you feel like it was a smooth transition? Do you feel like it was kind of wild for you to go from like doing all this schooling to no more schooling and just like a regular life?
1: I felt like it was a pretty smooth transition for me. Um, I think that was in part because where I did my last clinical ended up also being where my first job was. So it's not like I had to learn about all like the kinks of the job. Like I kind of knew it already. Um, I will say though, so I switched jobs about a year ago and moving from where I was to where I am now, I felt like that was a harder transition for me. Um, just because, I mean, the way they did things at their clinic was way different than how things were done at this past, at my old clinic. Um, so just kind of learning everything with that. And I think, that was after my clinical fellowship year, too. So I was then, like, a fully licensed, like, totally on my own, essentially. It's not like I had, like, that supervisor over me anymore.
0: Was it mostly the process that was very different, like, how things were done there? What was it that you felt, like, was so different from one to the next?
1: I think part of it was, um, like, the way they're, like, electronical medical records the way they did. all That's like, that's where like you do your daily notes, where you write your progress reports, where you write your evaluation reports. That was like way different. And at my old clinic, I didn't really have to like, worry about the insurance side of things. But at this clinic, I was kind of more like independent on making sure that like kids were qualifying that insurance would cover the services for them and all that. So I think that was like, kind of stressful I didn't want to like mess that up and then a family owes us like a ton of money because insurance isn't covering it for them so that was part of it and I think just like the clients that I had were just like different it was just kind of a different type of clients that I was working with so I mean it ended up like I like the clients that I have I shouldn't say I like them better I like the type of clients I have now better than at my old clinic, but just kind of like transitioning to, oh, like I'm doing this now, this type of therapy was just a little bit different.
0: That's really interesting that even though you're within the exact same field, that you felt like such a big transition from one job to the next.
1: I think every clinic just like has like their own way of doing things. And anytime you switch jobs, it's like a huge learning curve, (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think that probably rings true in a lot of professions. I think I just wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that it would be that way in a more of a standardized profession, but that's really interesting to know. What do you feel like was one of the biggest surprises for you within, I guess, the first job? Because, and kind of a, a twofold question to that, something that is kind of a misconception about the industry that you found to then be a misconception when you actually started working in the field? Like a big thing that like
1: people always talk about is like, there's so much paperwork in this field, which is true. Like you have to write your daily notes every day and then bill for that. You have to write progress reports every three months, reevaluations every year. And then I also do evaluations every other week. So writing those reports up every other week as well. Um I will say though that it is not like I don't have to bring work home with me. I feel like a lot of times people would always talk about how they have to like bring work home with them to get all that paperwork done. And maybe part of it is just like the clinics where I'm at, they're where they put their productivity. They just like make sure that they're not, we're not like 90% productivity, which means you're with clients 90% of the time and only have 10% of that time for paperwork. We're like much lower than that. So we just have that extra time for paperwork built into our day. Um, And it could be different at other clinics. I think I've just been fortunate to find ones where they have that good balance.
0: That's actually really interesting to know. That breakout, what do you feel like is more realistic? Like how much time do you feel like you spend with your patience, and is that what you feel like is your bread and butter the thing that you love the most about the job I'm guessing based on how you're speaking about the paperwork it's not your favorite part of it yeah. so <laughs> do you feel like you are able to get your true fix out of what you're passionate about in it within that time frame
1: I think so yeah I think our productivity we're typically at like 70 percent so 70 percent of the time we're okay. with clients and 30% we have set aside for paperwork. I definitely think I get to do a lot
0: of what I love still. And do you get to use your Spanish more at this job that you previously were able to do?
1: Yeah. So at my old job, I didn't get to use my Spanish at all. Part of the reason I switched jobs was to be able to use my Spanish. Um, The clinic that I'm at right now is in Invergrove Heights, which is pretty close to West St. Paul. And in West St. Paul, there's a decent Hispanic population. Um, so I currently think I have eight kids on my caseload who are Spanish speaking. So I see them, I have at least one Spanish speaking client every day. Um, we're working on marketing to get more. We're kind of starting a plan for that. Um, there's a clinic called La Clinica in West St. Paul. And we're going to be going there to like, let them know like, hey, we have a Spanish speaking speech language pathologist, send your clients on over.
0: Are you the only one? Yeah. Wow. So that really sets you apart, I'm sure. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool, though. That's yeah. like amazing that you're able to implement that and provide that for the clinic, but also for these patients, more people can come to them. They probably wouldn't have been able to before. Does the technique or therapy change? based on the language it doesn't
1: there's like a couple things you have to be like a little more aware of in terms of like speech sound stuff so like if they speak spanish like there are going to be some sounds that like they may not say correctly because of that but the therapy is essentially the same just in spanish
0: i wonder if that's the same for other languages too or if it's just because close relation
1: yeah spanish and english I would imagine it's probably the same for all languages Mm -hmm. because, I mean, the foundations are the same of how you're going to do therapy. Like we have like our principles and techniques that we use.
0: Well, I do want to ask, too, because I know this because obviously I know you very well. But at your first job, you actually had the opportunity to work kind of in tandem with your sister And I want to ask about that because it's a very unique experience. I feel like a lot of people don't work alongside their siblings very often. So could you tell us about that experience? Yeah. So my sister is an occupational therapist. So just
1: really briefly, occupational therapists are, she does it with kids. So like a lot of like what they're working on, it can be like fine motor skills, like if it's hard for them to cut with scissors. Writing, mm-hmm. drawing, like in the lines, things like that. That's part of it. A lot of it's like emotional regulation. If you have big reactions to small problems, working on that. Um, so yeah, that's what she does. <laughs> but yes, I did get to work with her. Um, I enjoyed it. <laughs> it was fun working with her. I, and I feel like it like strengthened our relationship as well. I mean, she's my sister, so obviously we have a relationship. But I feel like it made us closer. Which was cool. It was sad. I was like sad to leave her, but but it was also like the same time. I feel like I've always just been known as like Allison's little sister.
0: So (laughs) (laughs) you wanted to branch out, (laughs) (laughs) and you just
1: go to like be like a little more independent.
0: (laughs) That's fair. That's really fair. But yeah, that seems really cool because I know too. You guys had a lot of the same patience, so you were almost able to, in a sense bring work home in a different kind of way, like have something that you can both relate to and talk about within similar professions, which I think is really unique. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we'll still like, I mean, if I like even have a client now where I'm like, Oh, like I am like so stuck with this. Like, what do I do? And I can like go to her still and she can help me out. Cause a lot of like what speech and OT do together, like we really do collaborate a lot.
0: That's awesome. At the clinic that you're at now, do they also have OTs? Yep. Yeah, we have speech language
1: pathologists, occupational therapists, and physical therapists.
0: And I do want to know, so you touched on this a bit in the beginning, that there's speech language for kids, which is what you primarily work on, and then also for adults. Is that really how it's separated, just like in kind of two things? Or are there like even more branches that you can go off in and specialize even more or whatever it may be?
1: Yeah, um, I would say in terms of like, specializing, I see more of that, like with adults, for example, like feeding and swallowing. That's something you can kind of like specialize in with adults, you do some of that with kids as well. But it's more of a thing with adults, same with like, neurological disorders, that's something you can kind of like do some specialties in as well. With kids, I don't see it as much. It's basically like, if you're going to see kids, you choose like, okay, I'm either going to work in a school, a private practice clinic, which I'm at, or a hospital. And that's kind of like the three branches you have there.
0: Is there one that you find to be more lucrative than another? And is that kind of what drew you to one over the other?
1: Schools are definitely where you would make the least. So that's kind of why I chose not to be in a school there definitely are like benefits to a school like you get summers off that's nice you get like all the breaks that's (laughs) nice (laughs) but schools you don't make as much and you just have like a wild caseload like you have like 80 kids that you have to see a week you end up having to see a bunch of kids in groups and you just like don't get that one-on-one time that you need with the kids hospitals you can make a lot of money in and you can also make a lot of money in a clinic if you don't accept insurance. So if you do private pay, my clinic currently is not that way. So I would say I'm not in like the most lucrative one at the moment, but yeah, if you do like private pay, that's where you can really make the most amount of money, I would say. But then, you know, that's finding the right, You know, you have to be in the right area where like people are going to have the money to do that. And
0: yeah. In those cases, too, at those clinics, are you more responsible for bringing in clients than you probably are now?
1: Probably. Yeah.
0: And then also for the specialty aspect that you talked about that you see more on the adult side Mm -hmm. of this profession do you have to do more schooling for specializations or is it more just doing that specialty on the daily?
1: Yeah, part of it is just, you know, like getting into that setting and seeing those types mm-hmm. of clients. And then there are also, you're required to take a certain amount of continuing education credits every, I think it's three years to maintain your license. So taking those courses that relate to that specialty.
0: I want to know too, just I mean, you've touched on this kind of a lot, like you see your patients, you do the paperwork, but a standard day to day for you, if somebody is like really looking to get into this profession and just wants to know, like, this is what happens Monday through Friday, I'm guessing days are probably different, yeah. but standard, what is it like Yeah. When you get in in the morning?
1: Yep. So, I mean, typically like a normal day, I get in, check my emails, uh, Listen to voicemails, all that stuff, and then, I mean, I'm I'm at work ten hour. I do ten hour days. I would say for like seven of those hours, it's seeing clients. Sessions are thirty minutes long, so I see each client for thirty minutes. Um, within that thirty minutes, you take time to talk with parents to get any updates from them on like how things are going at home. See the kid, do the therapy, and then you also update family and give them any homework to do at home we like to give out like home programming for them to do stuff at home to work on what we were working on as well and then anytime i'm not with a client it's spent doing that paperwork or just like prepping for sessions whether that be finding toys to do to play with the kids finding like i'm on teachers pay teachers all the time finding activities to do um and finding home programming for parents to do at home with their kids as well. And then you go home at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> then you get to have a nice, normal life. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's nice. That it, it is, you know, I feel like it does provide you with that stability and having more of that kind of 9 to 5. Also, Caitlin gets Fridays off. Yes, I do. <laughs> which is really, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know. Because you're in the thick of it now, you've had experience at two different clinics, two different spaces, two parts to this question. What do you see as maybe the biggest gap in this industry and also some new and exciting things in the space?
1: I think the biggest gap, like hardest thing is burnout is really common in this field. And uh, clinics don't always realize that. (laughs) So making sure that there are like benefits in place to deal with that um, or that like they have things and like stuff to fix that like if you're starting to feel burnout like okay like how are we gonna fix this because um, I mean it is I love my job, but it is exhausting. I come home and I <laughs> I, I always like, joke with danny that i just like come in like a tornado at the end of the day just like i have like no patience left (laughs) i'm just
0: like
1: (laughs) like, i just want my dinner i want to watch tv it's
0: probably what happens when you spend all your time with kids
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly i know it's just something i like worry about that i don't know like one day when i have my own kids like am i gonna like start to hate my job because i'm with kids all day um Mm. So something I worry about, but a problem for another day. Um, personally, new things I'm excited about is, like, the Spanish stuff. Something I have been, like, thinking about recently that I would really like to do is uh, somehow there's, like, so much thought that needs to go into this still. But my one of my coworkers went to Honduras recently and... Uh, She was doing, like, kind of, like, Doctors Without Borders, like, type thing. Like, they went there and, like, did surgery, and she was just, like, assisting with that. Um, And this, like, village that they were in, they had, like, a special needs area that she went to go see, and just, like, the way she described it, it just sounded, like, horrible. Like, these kids are in, like, essentially, like, jail cells because these, like, people don't know how to handle kids with special needs, which is just like really sad. Like just like the way she was describing it. I was just like, this is like horrible. And then that got me thinking, it's like, okay, what can we do to fix this? Like how like we like go to like these like poor countries and like educate them and teach them like how to deal with special needs kids. And I mean, part of it is just like, you know, they just don't have the resources or the money I don't know. That's just something I've been thinking about recently. And I would have no idea where to start or what to do. But
0: but something that's on your mind that you feel like, yeah, I just feel like there's something there to like, help these kids. But yeah. Do you feel like there are programs out there at all? I mean, similar, I guess, to kind of what she was doing? I mean, because one of the biggest things, like you touched on it, like it is the lack of resources and like everything like that. But then that becomes so challenging of, you know, not just coming into a country and then implementing your own strategies as like a third party, not understanding their infrastructure. Yeah. But then also, you know, like seeing where you can help or I think it's such a it's such a fine line to toe. But I think that, yeah, if like if you're passionate about it, that's definitely something that, I don't know. Research, talking to people that are locals, you know, yeah. those that like deal with everything on the day-to-day, what resources they do have, what biggest gaps they see. Yeah. Like I think that's that would all be incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. From the perspective of now having been in this for a couple years now, really getting the lay of the land, if you were speaking to somebody that was trying to get into this profession, a high schooler maybe that's similar to you, just heard about it. What is something that you would tell them that you wish that you knew prior to getting into this space? What do I
1: wish I had known?
0: <laughs> Hard question. <laughs> it can be something good or bad. Like it doesn't have to necessarily okay. be like a challenge. Like it could also be something that like you really love.
1: Yeah. Well, I think I mean just making them aware, like I said, like, it's an exhausting job. You I mean, like some of these kids and adults that you work with, like, there are some really sad stories out there. So just like, it can take an emotional toll on you. And I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's hard then because of like, HIPAA, you know, you can't like, I, I can't come home and like, tell Danny about it, you know, like, there's just so like, you have to keep a lot In which is hard but at the end of the day it's like so rewarding like when your client like takes that big step and like you're seeing that progress made it's just very rewarding
0: so you would do it all over again I would do it all over again yes
1: (laughs) I will say it's not as much money as you
0: think it's gonna be (laughs) that's good to know though yeah because it's kind of like, it has to be almost like a passion. Yeah. Good things to know, definitely good things to know. And just to be aware of because if it is a profession that you're listening to this right now, and you think that it sounds really amazing, go for it. I think a lot of times, especially in our society, we get very caught up about that money aspect of it. But it's Mm -hmm. also like, that's, that can be one person's top priority, and not even be a part of another person's top five you know like it it completely depends on like what you're what you're looking for in your life and the balance all of it kind of a funny question that I have for you but something that I thought about when thinking about talking to you today do you feel like outside of your job do you find yourself analyzing how people speak (laughs) I do yes (laughs) I do really (laughs) I'm always
1: I'm always on
0: (laughs) do you do it for yourself too no I don't just others yeah Will you ever say anything to people? I tell Danny a lot when he does something weird. Danny's her boyfriend, by the way, for anybody listening. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I
1: (laughs) yell at him about his body language a lot. That's because that's something we... Like with social communication, body language, lots of that. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. No, but even like if I am like listening to a podcast... (laughs) (laughs) Not this one, but (laughs) there's this one that I was listening to one time and like the girl just had like this horrible lisp and I was like, ah, it irritates me so much. (laughs) Like, I need to fix that.
0: (laughs) But yeah. Reach out to her directly. Right. (laughs) I can help you. (laughs) Well, do you have any kind of last pieces of advice for people again that are interested in going into this career path and then also some resources that you feel like have been helpful for you whether that be like i don't know if you have followed other people in this profession and taken tips from people or if just like there's a book that spoke to you or i don't know just google it could be google you know
1: (laughs) um In terms of advice, I would give people, I mean, this is a really awesome profession. It's grueling to get to the end (laughs) through all the schooling and everything. It's exhausting, but it's so worth it at the end. So just like push through it. That would be kind of my big advice. Get those um, volunteer experience. Get that. Just try to make yourself like as well-rounded as possible. Um, resources, the American Speech and Hearing Association website. They that's like where I looked and found like the whole list of grad schools. Um, if you're in the profession you probably already know speechpathology.com. Um, like tons of continuing education courses on there and a lot of them are really good. And I do follow on Instagram the type B SLP. And she's really great. She has like so many uh, resources that I take from her.
0: Awesome. And for you, do you feel like there are any ultimate goals that you're trying to reach within the coming years or just little goals, some tomorrow goals, or any next steps in your career?
1: I mean, my big one right now is reaching the Spanish community kind of a big thing that I'm working towards at the moment. I would like to just continue growing that clientele in our clinic. And I think there's a lot of education that can be done too. Like speech language pathology really isn't a thing outside of the United States. So like a lot of these Spanish speaking families like aren't really aware of what it is. So just like educating on that as well and what our profession does. That's all really cool.
0: Well, as we close out this interview, I have one final question for you. And it's something that I like to ask all my guests because I think it's kind of just telling about where you are in your life and some things that you take from words. Being a speech-language pathologist yourself, you know how important words are. So do you have a quote or a phrase that you feel like you live by? Yes. I do. <laughs>
1: um, this one is by Walt Disney.
0: Oh, me and Caitlin, just for some background for the listeners here, we would do combined costumes every year when we were younger. So one year I was a Mickey Mouse and she was Minnie Mouse. That was a good costume. Once we were salt and pepper. I love the salt and pepper one. The salt and pepper one was the best. We like We made that costume. <laughs>
1: I know. It's comfy. (laughs) All
0: right. Yes. Tell us your quote. Tell us your quote. My quote,
1: the way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. That's a great one coming from a speech language pathologist. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I didn't even think of that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so easy to like talk about wanting to do stuff like when you're reaching trying to reach a goal like oh i want to do this i want to do this i want to do this but okay you can say you want to do something all the time but it's not going to happen if you don't do anything about it so that's why i like it i think it's really important to act on what you say
0: i love that quote i think that that's such a phenomenal one and it really ties in perfectly how I tried to describe you in the beginning of this too. Caitlin is very much a doer. Like she, when she says she's going to do something, she does it. That is why, again, she has gotten to where she is today. So I think that's perfect for you. Caitlin, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for sharing everything about this profession. I feel like you gave such a detailed well rounded scope of what this career is what it looks like and how to get there if you're interested in doing so yourself so thank you so much yes thank you for having me thank you guys all for listening as always you can find us excuse my reach on all major streaming platforms like download share with your friends be kind to those around you and don't be afraid to reach a little higher Yay!
1: <laughs>